Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be reading this morning verses 18 down through verse 22. You know, when I started this series on the book of 1 Peter, I was hoping that the timing would work out that we would be in this particular text on Palm Sunday. And it worked out perfectly. Uh, We'll be concentrating mainly on verse 18. We're looking this morning at the subject matter, Good News. That's the title of today's message, Good News. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll be reading verse 18 down through verse 22. Again, the title of the message today, Good News. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, we thank you so much for the epistle the little letter of First Peter, and what an encouragement it is to us that in a dark culture that we are to live as strangers and aliens. This world is not our home. And God, we thank you for the verses that we will look at today that point us to the fact that this world is not our home, that heaven is our home because of Jesus. That it is only because of him, his death, his burial, and his resurrection through which we are saved. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. If anybody does not know him in a personal way who is here this morning, Lord, we would ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would touch their hearts and speak to them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The Moses, as it is called, is a sculpture by the Italian high renaissance artist Michelangelo. And the sculpture is housed in the church of San Pietro in Rome. Commissioned in 1505 by Pope Julius II for his tomb, it depicts the biblical figure of Moses with horns coming out of his head based on a description in Exodus 34 in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible that was used at that time. The Moses of Michelangelo is represented as being seated. His body faces forward. His head with its mighty beard looks to the left. His right foot rests on the ground and his left foot is raised so that only the toes touch the ground. 
His right arm linked the tables of the law with a portion of his beard. His left arm lies in his lap. Again, the statue has two horns coming out of Moses' head. The depiction of a horned Moses stems from the description of Moses' face as cornuta, meaning horned, in the Latin Vulgate translation of that passage found in Exodus chapter 34. Specifically verses 29, 30, and 35 in which Moses returns to the people after receiving the commandments for the second time. Now this was Jerome's effort to faithfully translate the difficult original Hebrew Masoretic text which uses a term that often means horn. Now the term is now interpreted to mean shining or emitting rays. In other words, Moses' face was shining when he came down off of the mountain when he had met with God. That's the general understanding today of that word. Now some historians believe that Jerome simply misunderstood the Hebrew. Medieval theologians and scholars understood that Jerome had intended to express a glorification of Moses' face by his use of the Latin word for horned. So it was the artist's way of depicting the shining on Moses' face. A misunderstanding? Yes, perhaps on both sides. Fortunately, such a misunderstanding is, is only good for a conversation if you go to Rome and see the statue. Some misunderstandings in the larger scope of life really don't matter that much. But not so with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, to misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ is deadly. In fact, it would be eternally deadly. It is no wonder that Paul said in writing to the Galatian churches, he said, if anybody comes to you and preaches a gospel other than the gospel that we have preached, let him be anathema. That is, let him be a curse. We've got to get the gospel right because the stakes are simply too high. We are fighting for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Now on this Palm Sunday, I want us to begin reflecting on the events that led up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday is the first day of Passion Week on the religious calendar. Passion Week refers to the week of suffering by Jesus ending up with him being put on trial and rejected and crucified. Now following the traditional calendar for Passion Week, we know that on Sunday Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were spreading palm branches and their cloaks in his path as he rode into town. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, he encountered difficulties and controversies with the religious leaders. On Wednesday, apparently he enjoyed a very important day of rest. On Thursday... 
we see the preparation for Passover that night. Jesus was arrested in the garden and subjected all night long to a mock trial, an illegal trial. On Friday, there was the trial continuing and the crucifixion. On Saturday, Jesus' lifeless body rests in the tomb. And on Sunday, Jesus was raised after three days in the tomb. You see, in the Jewish mindset and reckoning of time, any portion of a day spent in the tomb would have been counted as a day. That's why according to the traditional calendar of events, we say that after three days he rose. It didn't have to be three 24-hour days in their entirety. And so Friday would have counted even though he was not in the tomb all day. Saturday, obviously, he would have been counted as a day. He was in the tomb for that 24 hours. And then Sunday would have been counted as well, although again he was not in the tomb all of Sunday. So for three days he was in the tomb and then God raised him to life again. Folks, those are the events of the gospel. That's the heart and the core of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. In other words, Jesus is the good news. Now with all the misunderstanding today of what it means to be a Christian, I want us to look this morning at a few verses that explain the gospel so succinctly and yet so completely that I've simply called the message today on these verses good news. This morning we want to look at the person and the work of Christ. Focusing only upon that work of his that has to do with the events of Easter. Now I want you to keep in mind the context of verse 18 and following. Peter has been telling those to whom he is writing that God can use their times of suffering. They were going through hardship. They were going through trials and tribulation. And Peter is assuring them if they suffer for doing right, God can use their suffering. As he pointed out to them, if they suffer for doing wrong or they suffer for doing evil, there's there's nothing in that that God can use. In fact, if they get punishment for doing evil, they're only getting what they deserve. But if they suffer for doing right, God can use that. And the illustration that he uses of that is Jesus. Verse 18 is essentially an illustration of what Peter has been saying. He's using Jesus as the greatest of all illustrations. Jesus suffered. And as we will see in this verse today, Jesus' suffering had a purpose. Jesus' suffering was so that you and I might be reconciled to a holy God and that all of our sins might be washed away and forgiven. And so again, Peter is holding Jesus up as the greatest example of suffering. Now we don't have time to cover this morning everything leading up to verse 22. I know some of you want me to do that. 
But as one of your Baptist theologians, Dr. Millard Erickson, has said, when you calculate all of the exegetical ways that verses 18 to 22 have been handled, Dr. Erickson says, if my calculations are right, there are 180 ways that these verses have been handled. He's not exaggerating. He means that 180 ways that these verses have been understood. Now, let me ju- even though I'm not going to go over all of those ways, let me, under- uh, let me point out to you a- an understanding of the groupings, the categories that all of those different ways fall under, what Peter is talking about here. Category 1 has much to say for it. It has a lot of merit. It's been around since the days of Augustine. I don't think it's the best way of looking at these verses. But uh, the interpretation falling under category 1 is that Jesus proclaimed the word of God through Noah. As Noah built the ark and preached, it was the Spirit of Christ speaking through Noah to his wicked generation. Category number two. Jesus went and preached to Old Testament saints, giving them the opportunity to come to faith in him. Category number three. Jesus went and preached to all who were lost and had never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so he was giving them a chance to hear and repent and to believe in him. But I believe it's category number four which actually holds the greatest merit. And that is that Jesus went and preached to wicked angels proclaiming his victory over them and over Satan through the cross. He wasn't giving them an opportunity to repent and believe because wicked angels can't do that. He simply went and proclaimed his victory over them. So again, those are the four categories that generally scholars fall somewhere in those four in interpreting these verses. Many scholars refer to this passage right here as the most difficult passage that you will encounter anywhere on the pages of the New Testament. The great reformer Martin Luther confessed, I know that what is being said in these verses is something good, but beyond that, I honestly don't know what these verses mean. But all of that applies again to to the tail end of verse 18 and going all the way down to the end of the chapter. That's not what we're looking at today. We're looking at the first part of verse 18. And nobody disputes what the first part of verse 18 is saying. These words are simple and yet profound. These words point out that Jesus' suffering accomplished our salvation. And I want us to look at that today. We're going to see that Jesus' death was special, it was substitutionary, and it was sufficient. 
In other words, it was accepted by God. It satisfied his holiness and his righteousness. First of all today, Jesus' death was special. Look again at verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Jesus Christ died when he was approximately 33 years of age. Other than the fact of his young age, nothing seems unusual about the statement that he died. We are acquainted with death. People around us die all the time. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die. Currently, for every 1,000 persons per year in the United States, there are roughly 8.3 deaths. It's considered the, the crude death rate and it's measured each year at the midpoint of the year so in America for every 1,000 people every year 8.3 deaths and so what that means is we're acquainted with death because people around us are dying all the time in fact death has touched every single family in this church at some time and in some way if Jesus tarries all of us in here this morning will die. Now usually not very much is recorded about a person's death. You go back through the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles for example. And it will say of each king that so and so ruled this many years. And then he died and he was buried and he rested with his fathers. It's not unusual to open up your newspaper. That is if you still read a newspaper. But if you open up a newspaper and you see the obituary section... Nothing unusual about that at all. In fact, my mother-in-law used to joke that she would read the obituaries every day to make sure that she was still alive. There's nothing unique about death. However, when we come to the death of Jesus, about one-third of the Gospels is devoted to his death. Folks, the Gospel writers are trying to tell us something. The death of Jesus was special. And it was special for a reason. In fact, we could say everything about Jesus was special. His birth was special. It was different than any other birth because he was born of a virgin. His life was different than any other life because he lived without sin. He was sinless. His death was di uh, different than any other death because of what his death accomplished. Look at the beginning of verse 18 again. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Jesus' death was special as it relates to sin. Now folks, you and I will never understand the death of Jesus until we understand its relationship to sin. The Bible says that sin brings death. And we're not very far into the pages of the Bible until we come to that realization. Because God tells us. You remember what God told Adam and Eve in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned. God came and he, he cursed Adam and he cursed Eve and he cursed the serpent. 
And as he was placing that curse upon Adam, he told Adam that Adam was going to die, not only spiritually, but also physically. He said, you're going to die and your body is going to return to the dust of the earth from which it came. Adam and Eve died. They died physically and spiritually. Why? Because of sin. We die for the very same reason. Paul in Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now that brings up a, an interesting question. Somebody could ask, Why then did Jesus die? Because you just said that Jesus with, was without sin. So why did he die? Jesus' death was special because while being ordained by God, it was voluntary before men. In a sense, Jesus' death was a real paradox. He didn't have to die, and yet he did have to die. It was the plan of God. The Bible says that Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. In that sense, he had to die. It was the ordained plan and will of God. But in relationship to sin, he wouldn't have had to die because he was sinless. His death was a voluntary, sacrificial death for you and me. He died in our place. He laid down his life for us. In John 10, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father one artist has painted a picture of Jesus as a young man in the carpenter shop and on the wall behind him you can see the shadow of the cross that's how Jesus lived his life in the shadow of the cross in Matthew 16 21 uh, the Bible says from that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. So Jesus death was special. Secondly, it was substitutionary. Jesus' death was substitutionary. Again, uh, Peter says here, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust, as your translation may say. His death was substitutionary in nature. Jesus did not simply die as a martyr for a good cause. That happens in the world all the time. Several years back I was touched by the story of Dennis Weichel, just 29 years of age. He was an army sergeant from Rhode Island who was about to be married when he got back from his tour in Afghanistan. He saw a young Afghan child, a little girl, about to be run over by a 16-ton armored fighting vehicle. 
You see, children are all the time in the streets and they're gathering up shell casings because they're very valuable in Afghanistan. The little children can gather them up and take them to places and sell them and get money for their families. Well, Sergeant Weichel noticed that this vehicle was bearing down on this little girl and she didn't know what was going on. She wasn't paying attention. And it was very clear to him that the driver couldn't see either. And so uh, Sergeant Weichel ran over and he scooped her up in his arms. He threw her off to the side and saved her. But in process, he was run over by the vehicle and he lost his life. He died as a hero. He died as a martyr. What a wonderful example. But Jesus didn't simply die to set us a good example. Now yes, yes, his death was a good example. He said, greater love hath no man than this, that, that he lay down his life for his friends. But folks, that's not the real reason why Jesus died. Why then did Jesus have to die? We need to understand something here. We need to understand that God is a holy God. The Bible says that God cannot even look upon sin. And you see there's a problem because the Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in our sinful condition none of us would be reconciled to God. God is a holy God. I suppose if of, of all that we could say about God in the Bible, if there's one word that would best describe him, it would be the word holy. Now one word alone can't describe God because of all of his majesty and his glory. He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, uh, he's omniscient. There's so many glorious things that we could say about God. It's hard to redu reduce the description of God down to one word, but if there was one word we could use I suppose it would be the word holy God is a holy God on the other hand man is sinful we are sinful by nature and by choice you don't hear much of that today you pick up the papers or you read on the internet and you read that man is violent or that somebody has this disorder or that disorder. But never once will you hear the media say that was a sinful act that so and so did. The media won't call it that. But the Bible does call it that. And all sin will be punished. God will not overlook sin. For God to ignore and pass over sin would mean that he is no longer just and holy. God will punish sin. But the wonderful thing is that he's willing to punish sin through a substitution. Through an exchange. And we see this concept all throughout the Bible, this concept of substitution. 
Dr. John R.W. Stott says the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man. Substitution. We see substitution in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament teaching about the Passover lamb, for example, was a lesson in substitution. In your mind, I want you to go back with me a moment to the book of Exodus. Now, folks, we've done this before. This shouldn't be anything new to you. We've been over these concepts before. You go back to the book of Exodus and you'll remember that the Passover lamb was to be a substitute for the firstborn male in the land of Egypt. The Hebrews were to take the blood of a Passover lamb and they were to sprinkle it on the doorpost and God said when I see the blood I will pass over that house those lambs pointed forward to Jesus Christ remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus he said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the time of Jesus outside of Bethlehem in what used to be the fields of Boaz, the shepherds raised lambs. Those lambs were special lambs. They were Passover lambs. Those lambs would be brought into Jerusalem during Passover week and they were sacrificed there. They would bring those lambs into Jerusalem through the sheep gate and on that same day Jesus was riding through the eastern gate on what we call Palm Sunday making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The lambs were being brought into Jerusalem through one gate and Jesus the Lamb of God was coming into Jerusalem through another gate and those little Passover lambs were examined carefully for three days the priest had to make sure there were no spots no blemishes no imperfections in them because if there were any blemishes in them those little lambs would would be sent away rejected and another would be examined in its place and so the priest had to make sure that those lambs were perfect. Those same three days, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was under a microscope being examined as well. The Pharisees were confronting him and questioning him and quizzing him. The Sadducees were doing the same. They were, they were examining Jesus. The civil leaders were doing much the same. They were questioning him and challenging him. And guess what? Nobody could find any blemish with Jesus. Nothing wrong. In fact, they knew if they were going to find something wrong, they were going to have to produce false witnesses who would lie about him. And that's exactly what they did. They produced false witnesses. But finally, Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. You see, Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God. 
as Jesus' cross was being prepared, the priest would have been preparing their utensils of death to kill those little woolly lambs. And then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Good Friday, when those priests would have been taking their razor-sharp knives and killing those little lambs, Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. Tetelestai. The perfect sacrifice had been made. From that time onward, those Passover lambs would never be needed again because the perfect sacrifice had been made. Paul tells the Corinthians, Christ is our new Passover lamb. Folks, what I'm trying to get you to understand is that Jesus' death was a substitution for you and me. Probably the best known passage in the Bible having to do with substitution, at least from the Old Testament, may be Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, we're told, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him we see the suffering that was involved in his substitution for our sin. The Bible says he was despised and forsaken of men. Think of all those times in the Gospels that men turned against Jesus. The Pharisees on one occasion said that he had a devil. Even his own siblings did not believe in him until after the resurrection. In John chapter 6 when he said, I'm the bread of life and you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, we know that all of those who were following Jesus they didn't understand what Jesus was trying to get at and the gospel of John tells us that the multitudes they were offended and they turned away from Jesus and they didn't follow him anymore he was despised and rejected of men he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knew pain of both body and soul inflicted upon him by others. He knew the sorrow of people turning away from him. He saw the grief of Mary and Martha at the tomb of their brother. And he wept. Despite the fact that Jesus knew what he was about to do and calling forth Lazarus, he still wept because he saw what death does to human families. He wept. The Bible says he's acquainted with sorrows. Aren't you glad that he is? Folks, because of the incarnation, because Jesus came to walk in our shoes, fully God and yet fully man at the same time, because He did that, because He was incarnate, Jesus understands all of the weaknesses, all of the sorrows, all of the pains that you go through so that today, whenever there's a need in your life and you take that need before God, guess what? Jesus Christ is your sympathetic high priest and He's your advocate before the Father. 
He came to lowly surroundings. He experienced temptation without sin. He experienced loss. He experienced death. He experienced loneliness. He experienced mockery. He experienced rejection. All for you and all for me. But in verse 4 of Isaiah 55, the picture becomes clear. He was not to blame for any of it. None of his suffering was because of his own sin. You see, that was the belief in the Old Testament. The belief in the Old Testament was that if you're suffering, it must be because you've sinned and done something wrong. That's what Job's friends thought about Job. They were like, Job, what have you done wrong? They were sure that Job must have done something wrong. And that's why Job was suffering. But verse 4 of Isaiah 53 says, Our griefs. He himself bore our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. And where are we in this picture? Well verse 6 says we've all gone our own way. All of us we're like sheep that have gone astray. The book of Proverbs says there is a way that seems right unto a man but the, way, the end thereof are the ways of death. But folks this is precisely where the gospel comes into play. Gospel means good news. The Lord calls the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Jesus bore your guilt and your sin, your transgression. He bore my guilt. My transgressions, my sin. He bore the guilt of us all upon the tree. And he died in your place for your sin. Do you see what the Bible is talking about? Substitution. And all through the Bible we see that. God allowed a substitution to be made for sin. And because those substitutes in the Old Testament were imperfect, they had to be done over and over and over again. But in Jesus Christ, the substitution to end all substitutions was made. And that's why Peter says here, For Christ also died for sins once for all. That's the verb tense. Once for all. Jesus died the death you deserve to die. And I deserve to die but he died that death once for all it never has to be done over again in Roman times when a man was put in prison there was a written document of his crime that was nailed to his prison door his crime against the state was listed his punishment was also listed how long he had to stay incarcerated was also spelled out and listed there and when that criminal had served his time when he had paid his debt to society they would come and they would write across that document the word tetelestai Paid in full. What did Jesus say from the cross? Tetelestai. Paid in full. He paid your debt and he paid my debt. 
that we might be forgiven. That all of your sin might be washed away and that you might have peace with God. You see, folks, in the cross, God has removed the enmity that existed between him and mankind. He's removed that. And through Christ, we're able to be in a new status of being at peace with God and reconciled to God. Because of the substitute that was made for our sin in Jesus Christ. A perfect substitute that never has to be done over again. Not only do we see that substitute though in the Old Testament with the lambs and all that pointed forward to Jesus, we see the concept of substitution in the New Testament. Paul in Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he writes, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God will punish sin. All sin will be dealt with and punished. But the question is, who will bear the punishment? See, you will either bear the punishment of your sin or or Christ will. It will be you or Christ. If it's you... Or me, guess what? We miss out on heaven and we end up in a place the Bible calls hell. But if Christ bears your sin, the Father says, welcome home my child. This one's mine. You remember as a kid, sometimes you might have, young people don't do this. Maybe you piled up leaves and took a magnifying glass. And you let the rays of the sun heat up those leaves and they'd smolder and finally burst into flame. That's what God did at Calvary's cross. All of his wrath, all of his judgment against sin was zeroed in on Jesus Christ, his son. And Jesus Christ is the one who suffered and he died. He took the wrath of God himself in his body on the tree. He took the wrath of God against sin and he bore that pain and that punishment. That's what the gospel is all about. Substitution. Folks, I want you to understand that because so many people get the idea that Christianity is just simply that that we go around the globe doing good deeds for one another. As Christians, we ought to do that. But that's not the gospel. Some people look at the New Testament, they look at all the moral teachings of Jesus and they say that's the gospel. Thank God for all the teachings of Jesus uh, in the New Testament and the gospels. 
But, but that's not the heart of the gospel. Thank God for the miracles that Jesus did. Thank God for the example that he offered in laying down his life. But I want you to understand the heart and the core of the gospel is Jesus Christ hanging there on Calvary's cross, taking all of the wrath of God against sin and bearing that wrath, bearing that punishment for you and me so that we would not have to. That's what Christianity is all about. We do all these other things because we've been reconciled to holy God. But we don't do all these other things in order to be reconciled to a holy God. Only Christ reconciles us because He was our substitute. And then lastly, Jesus' death was sufficient. Jesus' death was sufficient. It satisfied a holy God because he says there that he might bring us to God that he might bring us to God he says he died the just for the unjust why that he might bring us to God you see it's so clear Romans 5 1 says being justified by faith we have peace with God not only peace with God but access into his presence what does man try to do man tries to work his way up to God into the presence of God That'll never work. Man turns to good works and philosophy and religion and all that. But all of that collapses. Only one thing brings us to God. His name is Jesus. Acts 4.12 the apostle said there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus takes us to God not only does Jesus wash away all of your sin and give you peace with God but as, as Peter is saying here he brings you to God the word is prosago here again I've mentioned this to you before a prosago is, is, is a mediator an introducer you don't just go into the president's office and sit down in the Oval Office and put your shoes up on his desk. If you're going to get into the Oval Office, you've got to be invited. You've got to have some. You've got to have a prosago, somebody who brings you. And the Bible is saying here that that is what Jesus is. He's not only the one who washes away all of your sin, but he's your prosago who takes you to God. It's through God. I mean, it's through Jesus that we go to God. When he died on the cross, what was split into the veil, symbolizing that the way into the Holy of Holies had been opened up through Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews says, now that we can go into the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ, we ought to with boldness go there. Jesus is our prosago, the one who takes us there. The gospel is not about the law. The law condemns. It's not about good works. The good news, the gospel, is Jesus. 
This Palm Sunday, do you know Jesus as your sin substitute? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Have you been born again? When you stand before God one day, you will either do so in your guilt or you will stand there clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You will either be the one to bear your sin or Christ will. Which will it be? On that first Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, I want you to remember from Luke's gospel that he wept over the city. You remember why he wept? Because they had hard hearts. They'd rejected him. They would not believe. He wanted to take them into his arms and be their savior and yet they would not hear of it. And because of that, he knew that they would be destroyed. He knew the Romans would come in in 70 AD and they would completely destroy the city and the temple. You see, they were trusting in the temple and they were trusting in those sacrifices. And the Romans were going to come in and destroy all of that. God was going to remove everything that they were trusting in, it was all going to be destroyed. They had expectations that God was supposed to work in some other way. In other words, they had come up. With their own version of the gospel, I guess you could say. And it was a gospel that would not save them. Some here may have come up with the gospel all in your mind of how you think God's supposed to work. And if it's not this gospel right here, it will not save. Come to Jesus. You say, Pastor, I've already done that. Great. Remember, every hour of every day, He has opened the way into the Holy of Holies. So you can take all of your prayer concerns, all of your needs, all of your trials and tribulations, and you can go before the Heavenly Father because of Jesus. And what you will find in Him is a sympathetic high priest who will be your advocate. As Christians, we still go through trials, but we don't have to go through them alone because Christ helps us. Lay your burdens at His feet.